0: So I recently heard the story of a man by the name of John Condit. So John Condit was a missionary, a Christian and Missionary Alliance missionary. That's the denomination that we here at Gateway Church belong to. And he lived in England in the late 1800s. So John Condit from a very early age had a strong passion in his heart to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, go out to the people of Africa. This was a big part of who he was, his identity. Even though he had never been to Africa, his heart was just stirred for that continent. And so over the years, he would pray and he would ask God, is there a way that I can go? Is there a way that I can be part of the ministry there? After many years, he had the opportunity to go to Africa. So he went into training, he did school, he learned under uh, A.B. Simpson, who's the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the CMA. And he finally got to the point that he was ready to go. So he did all of his schooling. He was ready. This was 1884. He graduated, and he got his African assignment. He was supposed to go to the country of Congo. And he was thrilled. He was so excited about the opportunity to minister to these people. So he loaded with a group of people onto a boat. He set sail from England down to Africa. And he finally arrived in the Congo in February of 1885. As they started to figure out what they were doing, this is him and his group of people. He started to get a little sick. In fact, he came down with a fever. Now, normally we wouldn't think that this is too big of a deal, but the difference is is that he came down with dengue fever, which is a fatal disease. And shortly after arriving in the Congo, John Condit passed away. This was a man whose entire life had been focused on seeing the gospel reach the African continent. And he was there for only months. Nothing in life is guaranteed, is it? Let me give you another story. On the screen behind me, you'll see a picture of Chief Petty Officer Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle was an amazing military officer, military man. He is one of the most effective, one of the most deadly snipers in American history, one of the most successful at his craft. Let me read off some of his accolades. He was a Navy SEAL. He had 160 confirmed kills. He still holds the 10th longest recorded sniper shot in history, which is 2,100 yards. That's over a mile and a half away. He received a Silver Star, which is the third highest award in the American military for valor. He had 15 other awards decorating his career. He survived four tours in the Iraqi war. He wrote a New York Times best-selling book, and he even had a movie recently made after him called American Sniper. He was An incredible soldier. Now, when he was finished, when he had retired from his time in the military, he decided to try to give back. And so he began a foundation for people that struggle with PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And down in Texas, he began a training facility to help military and police officers learn their craft even better. He was an amazing man. And he had a great future ahead of him until when he was stateside he was at a shooting range with a friend who was also struggling with PTSD and the man cracked and murdered Chris Kyle what a terrible story what a terrible Thing He had this legacy of this future in front of him, and yet it was taken. But nothing in life is guaranteed, right, church? For many of us, we've experienced something like this. Whether it's a family member that was taken too early. Or maybe it wasn't even that severe. Maybe it was just a job that you lost. You weren't planning on it, but... You were laid off. That's happened to me. Maybe that vacation you had planned on, it was rained out the whole time. Nothing in life is guaranteed. Now, what I would love the sermon to be about today is about answering the question of why. Why is it that these bad things happen? But you know what? First, it would be impossible to do that. But second, I'm not convinced it would be helpful. Even if I knew the answer for why these great men were taken early. Why it is that you lost your job. Why it is that your children are wayward. I don't know that that would be helpful. I don't know that that would help catapult us toward godliness. But I'm thankful that James... He doesn't tackle the why, but he gives us in today's text a little bit of a tool set for how do we engage the world knowing that nothing in life is guaranteed, that in a moment's notice we could get that phone call or that text message that completely blows up everything. You see, the world is filled with stuff that's bad and and sometimes it's worse than we expect. Sometimes it's better than we expect, right? Sometimes we're like, wow, I landed that job? Wow, that happened? That's that's unbelievable. Sometimes life is is easier than we expect, but most often it's harder than we expect, right? Today, James is going to address this topic of how do we live in a world that's unpredictable, that has no guarantees. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We're going to be in James chapter 4 today. We're continuing in our series called Faith That Works. We are approaching the end of the book of James. And James has had a lot of strong messages for us. Hard messages at times, but ultimately, good messages, I believe. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in a purple chair, or you can follow along with me on the screens behind me. We're going to start in verse 13. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So I'm going to build a little bit of context for you about James Day, what was going on in his time. So there were basically two types of people in James Day in terms of resources. There were those that generally did not have a lot of resources, didn't have expendable income. That was 95 99% of society. If you didn't catch a fish, if you didn't grow your own crops, if you didn't sell something, you weren't going to eat that particular meal. That was the majority of people. But in addition to that, there was a smaller group of people that were wealthy, that were more well-resourced in James' day. Now, at different times in the text, throughout this time in James, James has had a different message for each group. So I'll give you some examples. A few weeks ago, we talked about how we shouldn't show favoritism for people that are wealthy, for people that are like us, but rather we should love on people regardless of who they are, regardless of their circumstance. That was a message that was written more toward the well-resourced. Certainly it applies to those that aren't as well-resourced, but it applies most specifically to them. At the same time, Paul, excuse me. James is also written to the group of people that aren't as well resourced. Hey, when somebody comes into your sanctuary, when somebody comes into church, don't give them the best seat if they look nice. Right? Don't cater to those that are oppressing you, is what he had to say. Now today, in the text, he is writing more specifically to those of us that are more well resourced. And Just as a a little bit of a a check, a a bit of an understanding, everyone in here generally is going to be in that sort of wealthy category. We are all, generally speaking, well-resourced by world standards and certainly by history's standards. And so this message, I think, has particular application for us. And what James says here in verse 13 is, nothing in life is guaranteed. I understand that you want to make plans. Maybe you want to go to this city for that business deal. Maybe you have this vacation, this Disney cruise planned. Maybe you've got something else, whatever that might be. But nothing in life is guaranteed. There's nothing in life that is owed to you. Life is full of unpredictability. I'll tell you another story. There was a friend of mine that I had the opportunity to participate in his funeral about six months ago. His name was Mike Hayden. Mike grew up and had a really hard upbringing early in life. He had drugs and alcohol in the home. He very quickly became addicted to those things. He ran in the wrong crowd. He spent time in jail. He had a really hard life as a young person. But then God jumped in and just changed his life. Dramatically Changed his heart. But instead of being like what I think some of us are, where, you know, God changes our heart, but we just sort of stay there, Mike didn't. Man, Mike invested. He said, Hey, what I have found in Jesus is better than anything else I could ever have. So I'm going I'm to pour into other people. And that's exactly what he did. He created a number of nonprofit organizations that really specifically pushed back the darkness in inner city Milwaukee with kids that were going down the pathway he went. There are hundreds and hundreds of people whose lives were impacted by Mike. This last winter, late winter, early spring, Mike was out running some errands, doing something that was very normal. And he had a, a great night with his wife planned. You see, again, things are never guaranteed. But he had this great night planned with his wife. He was going to have a nice meal. He was going to do all this stuff. But he had errands he had to run first. And so he's, he's running late in his errands. And when he died, he was in his 70s, just to give you a little bit of context. And, and he, he wasn't as comfortable driving at night, but it was getting late. He was running late. And so what ended up happening is instead of having caution at his normal level... His caution went down just a little bit. He drove a little bit more recklessly and ended up in a fatal car accident. But he was, he was doing all the right things, though. But he, he wanted to spend this time with his wife. Isn't that a good thing? Once again, life is fragile. And we don't know. It's unpredictable. Nothing is guaranteed to us. Now, I don't know about you, But one of the first things that I do when I think about this is I start to ask, well, okay, so if I'm not in control of my life, who is? Like, okay, just confession time for you. Not that I haven't confessed enough in front of you already. But I'm kind of a control freak. I don't know if you can tell. But I'm kind of a control freak. I like things to sort of be my way, right? I'm looking at my wife, and she's nodding her head, right? I kind of like things my way. I like to know what I'm doing. I'm a routine-based person. I like to take the same route to work every day. I would eat the same meal every day. Amanda's lasagna. I would do it all the time. I don't like to be out of control. But yet, it's clear that we are out of control. We don't have control over what happens in our lives. And the question that I ask is, well, If I don't have control of my life, of what goes on, of what happens to me, who does? Or does anybody? Is this just a big spiraling mess of whatever? Well, the answer, the short answer is yes, God is in control. He oversees everything. He presides over all that exists. He is ultimately in control of all. Now, I think sometimes when we consider the control of God and the power of God, I think we have sort of a limited view of God's power. So I'll give you an example. I think one way in which we have a limited view of God's power is we look at God and the power of good versus Satan and the power of evil. And I think sometimes, whether we would say it or not, we kind of have in our head that they're somehow kind of equal, right? That, you know, there's this battle going on, and, and yeah, I mean, hopefully God comes out. Maybe he's a little bit better, but, but you know, it's going to be a knockdown drag out, right? I mean, we see it in pop culture all the time. There was a movie that came out in 2010 called Devil, and it was about Lucifer, and it was about his power, and, and his power to torture people without any boundaries, without anything holding him in check. We think that, for some reason, God and Satan are almost on the... The same power level at times. But that's actually not even close to what's true. That's not even near what's biblical. God, in fact, is immensely superior to everything, including Satan, including sin, including the power of death and darkness. God is far above all. I'll give you a good example. There's a man in the Old Testament, on the left-hand side of your Bible, named Job, And Job had this really interesting story. And at the beginning of the book of Job, there's this interesting interplay between God and Satan that I think really does a good job of illustrating this level of power. We're going to listen to this story really quickly. Take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you for this. All right, you may test him," the Lord said, saying, "Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but do not harm him physically." So Satan left the Lord's side. So I don't know if you just caught what happened there, but Satan goes to God, and he's he's having this conversation, and God says, "Hey, look at my boy Job. Isn't he awesome?" He worships me, he's holy, he's righteous. And Satan's like, come on. It's because you're pampering him. This is the Jeff paraphrase, by the way. It's because you're pampering him. You take away his stuff, he's going to curse you. But what happened next? Did Satan just walk out and do what he wished? No. See, Satan is subject to God's authority as well. And God had to give permission to Satan. In fact, he gave a permission with a limitation. You can do whatever you want with this stuff, but don't harm the man. You see, there is no battle between the two. The battle's already won. God, in his immense power, in his infinite power, far supersedes Satan and the evil and sin We use a word for this power called sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is a really big word. It's a, it's a kind of a churchy word. You don't hear sovereignty very much outside of church. But what it basically means is this. If you're sovereign over something, it means that nothing can happen within your area of authority without your approval, with at least you saying, okay, right? Now, God, let's take God as an example. God is sovereign over everything, That means that in any and every corner of the entire universe, there's nothing that occurs without his power overseeing it. Now, it does not mean that he necessarily approves of everything that happens, but it means that in the end, it all reports up to him. So let me give you a couple of examples. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but God reigns over the natural order. He is sovereign over the natural order. So the cold weather outside, which is driving me bananas right? God's sovereign over that. God's sovereign, sovereign over gravity. That's why you're still seated in your chairs today. God's sovereign over air, over the atmosphere. That's why we can still breathe. God is sovereign over the natural order. God is sovereign over, this is a good one, over government. So we're in a situation now where we're moving into a high-level political season. And whether or not you agree with what's going on or not, or you wish it was different or the same, God presides over it. Every single person in every single political spot always, ultimately, reports up to God. Nothing happens beyond his scope. God reigns over life and death. God's not surprised when you have a baby. He's not like, whoa, I wasn't looking for that one. That's a surprise. God's not surprised by that. God reigns over our social interactions. So even that person that you don't get along with very well, maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's one of your kids. Maybe it's a neighbor. God reigns over that relationship too. It's never so bad that God couldn't understand it. God reigns over your business transactions. God is the one that put that deal on your plate. It wasn't entirely because of your effort. It was because of God. God is sovereign over everything. There is not a single corner of this universe that God does not have authority over. Now, this should kind of make us step back. Again, I told you earlier I'm a control freak. It makes me step back a little bit and say, wait, hold on. I want to have control. I want to be in charge. But you see, that's, that's a sinful position in my heart. Because it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God. This is his story. These are the things that he holds authority over. This life that you live, the life that I live, all of the things we interact with, it all belongs to God. And my tendency sometimes is something good happens and I'm like, Great job, Jeff. Or something bad happens and I'm like, Ugh! And it's not that those things are necessarily wrong, but there's this middle ground in humility, right? Where it's not all about us. Where it's not all about, Look at what I did. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at everything that I'm about. But at the same time, it's, it's not, Look how awful I am. Look at how terrible I am. See, that statement in the same vein is equally as Selfish. Only God can really tell you who you are. Only God. Your identity is defined by who God says you are, not by you. And so when I have the temptation to think of myself too highly, too lowly, I have to remember that nothing in this life is guaranteed. God ultimately is the one that presides over my life. I found this quote online, and I like this. We are all constantly on life support, and God is the only thing that keeps us going. We are all constantly on life support, and God is the only thing that keeps us going. Let's read verse 14 again. It says this. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes God's saying that our life is like a vapor that our life is is so fast in the context of eternity and he likens it to a vapor to a smoke to a mist now I have a box of matches up here I'm not going to light anybody on fire so don't worry at least I'm going to try not to when you light a match something happens there's a brief moment where you see smoke but smoke goes away really quickly when you light a match So we're going to do a little experiment here, okay? You guys are going to be in my laboratory. This is my lab. And I'm going to light this match, and I want you to count how long you can see smoke. You can do so in your head. You don't have to count out loud. But I want you to think, how long is it that you see smoke after this, okay? Here we go. Ready? What, about four or five seconds maybe? That's the way our life is in the context of eternity. You see, there's an important principle here. When you were created, you were created with a beginning, with a starting point. But there is no ending point for any human being ever. Okay? So let me explain that a little further. Yes, this life has an ending point. You're born, most all of us, unless Jesus comes back, are going to die in this room. It's a hard truth, it's a hard reality, but it is a reality. But the thing is, is just because this life ends, it does not mean that we cease to exist. You see, when God made us, he made us as eternal creatures. We will have a life that extends beyond this one. Now, it doesn't mean that this life isn't important, because this life is the prelude to the real life, the real life being one of two options. Either, if you choose to follow Christ, if you choose to submit yourself to him, we will live our life in an existence that is fully satisfied in God, in a place we call heaven, where you and I, as followers of Christ, will be everything we were designed to be. That's option number one. And by the way, the preferred option. Or the other way is if we reject God, if we choose not to live in obedience to Him, then we'll get what we want. We'll get rebellion. We'll get separation from God. And we'll be in a place of eternal torment where we were as far away from what we were designed to be as possible. You were designed to be with God in heaven. I don't know if everybody's ever said that to you. You were made for heaven. Did you know that? You're not made for hell. But what we do in this life sets the tone for that. But the principle is this that this life, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, 90 years, whatever God gives us here, it's short. It's a breath. It's only a moment in the context of eternity, of what that next life will look like for us. Let's continue. Chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. I love this idea. It's a hard idea, though, okay? So this phrase, if it is the Lord's will, it's one of our favorite kind of phrases to say. It's a phrase of submission. It's a phrase of saying, okay, God, your way, it might be harder than my way, but your way is better than my way. And again, for a control freak, for somebody who likes to know what's going on, who likes guarantees, that's hard. But what James is saying is the way we should live our lives is in a position of saying, God, it's what you want. It's the direction that you have. If it is your will, Lord, we will conduct that business engagement. If it's your will, we'll go to this place, we'll do this thing, whatever that might be for you. I love... That he says this. Instead, we ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live. I love that he takes it back to basics. That it's even at God's will that we breathe. In this moment, you're breathing because it's God's will for you to breathe. If your heart's beating right now, it's because it's God's will that your heart breathes. Again, this is, this is not about us. This is not about what we want or what, what, what we think we have control over. This is completely about what God has control over. About what God is sovereign over. Now I want to take a couple minutes, I want to dive into this phrase, if it is the Lord's will. And what I want to do with it is, is I want to talk first of all about what it isn't. I think it's important to talk about what it isn't before we talk about what it is. So first of all, this phrase, if it's the Lord's will, it's not a magical incantation. Like you're not just going to like say this and then whatever you say after it's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, if it's God's will, I'm going to be a millionaire. Well, it doesn't really work that way. There shouldn't be that expectation that whatever we say is going to happen. It's not a magic spell. In addition to that, it doesn't automatically make us right in what we say after it either. Like, it's not like, okay, if it's God's will, I'm going to steal that Ferrari and not get caught. Like, it doesn't automatically make that okay, right? Now, this, this one's a little bit of a stretch, but I think that this is an important one. Um, it's not an excuse for us to be lazy, right? If it's the Lord's will. Let me, let me give you an example of this. I've heard this before. If it's the Lord's will, I'll share the gospel with my coworker. Okay? If it's the Lord's will, I'll serve in church. Okay? Now, I do think that there is a place for waiting. A lot of times, they, people, we attach that idea to this, if it's the Lord's will. If it's the Lord's will, I'll do this, but I'm going to wait and see, right? And I do think that there is an important place for waiting in life, right? You shouldn't recklessly run into getting married, as an example. You should thoughtfully, and with waiting and with prayer, soak in that. You should thoughtfully approach a job change or a move or whatever that looks like. But man, I think sometimes we use it as a piece for laziness or for fear. If it's the Lord's will, I'll share the gospel with my neighbor. No, man. Maybe the timing we need to be sensitive on, but we need to be aggressive in that. I have a A guy that I look up to a lot. I mentioned his name last week. His name is Matt Chandler. He's the pastor of the Village Church down in Dallas, Texas. And he tells this really awesome story about him coming to know Jesus for the first time. And it was in either middle school or high school. He was at football practice, and he goes into the locker room. And a guy, a couple lockers down from him, walks up to him and says, Hey, Matt, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Okay? You tell me the time and the place, but it's going to happen. right like we're gonna do it we can do it on your terms it's gonna happen though like how crazy would it be if we approached evangelism that way if, if we approached telling people the beauty of what jesus is all about that way how crazy would that be hey jim i'm gonna do it i hope you're ready but if now's not a good time we can do it tomorrow right I think sometimes we inadvertently use that phrase, if it's the Lord's will, to become a little lazy, to let fear take over. And instead of being action-oriented, which is what James has been so strongly pushing for us to be, we set back on our laurels and we get a little lazy. Now let's talk about what this is, if it's the Lord's will. Let's talk, we've talked about what it isn't. Let's talk about what it is. It's a phrase Of saying, God, again, my life belongs to you. And it causes us to to ask a different kind of question, I think. Is everything in my life in submission to Christ? If it's the Lord's will, is my life submitted appropriately to Christ? And that's kind of the litmus test to see if our motives, to see if our life is where it should be. God, is is, is my finances, are my finances submitted to you? Lord, if it's your will, I'll use my finances well. God, is my relationship with my wife submitted to you? God, is my relationship with my kids who I, oh, I've i told for the 10th time to clean their room and they still haven't done it? Is that submitted to you? I think that's an important question for us to ask. The one area that I think this is really particularly important. And and it's important to just dialogue about this. But I think that we need to ask this question, if it's the Lord's will, the way that we interact with our lives, I think it's important to, to press into this area in the area of our finances. In the way we use our money. You see, the way we use our money is a reflection of what we value. And what we value is a reflection of what's in our heart. And so how we use our money... Is what we really think is important in life. And so for us, I mean, are you using your money in a way that you can say, yes, God, this is surrendered to you? Am I? This is a challenge for me. In addition to being a control freak, I like my stuff. I'm a little bit materialistic sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Am I submitting my money to God, that He might use it? And are you, are we, collectively? It's a hard truth to lean into. And I know, too, that the church in the past has abused money. I'm not saying gateway, but I'm just saying the church holistically. The church universal, we've abused money. And we've, you know, we've had people that are, that are misusing people because of financial resources. But I think the question still remains in our own heart, are we using our resources the way that we should? Let's continue reading. Verse 16 says this As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. When we make it about us, when we lean into ourselves being the center of the universe, it's sinful. When we boast about how great we are, we're leaning into the wrong kinds of things. We're leaning into sin and into dysfunction and into brokenness. And ultimately, too, I'm just going to say this. Like, there's a lot of weight to making the whole world about you. Right? It's heavy. Like, release that. Be humble. Approach the world to say, God, if it is your will, we'll do this, we'll do that. Because I don't want the weight of expectation on myself, right? In verse 17, it says this, If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is kind of a culmination of of everything that James has been teaching us in the book. That it's all about action. It's all about saying, I see, Lord, the way that I should live. And when we choose not to engage in that, it's sinful. Sin is not just, I did the wrong thing. Sin is also, I neglected to do the right thing. And in this same context, Lord, if it's Your will, I'll live this way. Don't let me be stagnant. Don't let me be uninvolved. Lord, use me. James is saying that that should be our heart. So I'll go back to the question, how do we live in the light of this truth that nothing's guaranteed? How do we live knowing that although we want to be in control of the world, and I do, man, I really do. I like control. How do we live in light of the fact that we just don't have it? I think James has pointed to this principle, which is that we need to depend on God. It sounds really simple. But if God's really the middle of the whole thing, if he's really powerful enough to run this whole deal, we need to put our dependence on him, not on ourselves. We're going to fail. I'm going to fail you. And you're probably going to fail me. Like we just fail each other. We're insufficient. But when we put our dependence on God, then even though our lives are short, even the lives of our friends are short, even though it's unpredictable, even even though things get rained out, you know what I mean? We can still live our lives in submission to God and we can live in a way that God uses us and fills us and satisfies us. And what does that actually look like I think there's a few things that we can do. The first is that we have to remember that every single moment in life matters, right? I think as as, um, 21st century people, I think sometimes we we can get into wasting time. I know I do that. I like to veg. I like to to watch TV and to, to binge on TV, and three or four hours later, five, six hours later, you know, whatever, I'm looking up, and I'm still watching TV. That's not, it's not wrong to watch TV. I don't want you to hear me say that. But, like, are you living in such a way that every single moment of your life matters? The title for the sermon today is Carpe Diem. And Carpe Diem is a Latin word that means seize the day. Are we, as followers of Jesus, seizing the day? Are we following? Are we chasing what he wants us to chase? I'll give you an example. I have a friend who recently started this this really great habit in using her kind of downtime well. And what she does is she regularly text messages or reaches out to three or four or five people a day. And she's put all of these individuals in a calendar so that there's this constant rotation. And all the time she can reach out and she can say, hey, how are you doing? Hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Hey, I want you to know you're loved and cared for. Like that's just one way that maybe we can be the church that we can take a hold of every moment so that even in the brevity of our life we can make a big impact and let's be honest there's a lot of people that that would love to be reached out to that would love to be cared on maybe that's something that you can do Another thing that we need to lean into is we need to recognize God's sovereignty. Now, this is like super abstract, and I totally get that. But it's important that we see God for who he is and see ourselves for who we are, right? One way that I like to do this is is I, I really like being in nature. Like even though it's cold outside, this is still my favorite time of year because of the colors, the trees, the beauty of God's creation, And I love that because it reminds me that God's in control and He's powerful, and I'm not. Another thing that that I think is important in this idea of of recognizing God's sovereignty is to remain curious. Amanda and I, we were sitting around the fire last week, and, and we were talking, and we were talking about water, of all things. Like something super simple that we just totally cast aside. But how crazy is water? You know, you drink it, and it goes through you, and then, like, it gets recycled, naturally, it recycles itself. Like there's no more water on the planet than there was thousands of years ago, and yet it's reusable. Like, isn't that weird? Isn't that crazy? I wonder how that works. I wonder why God made it that way. See, that feeds this curiosity and helps to remind us that God's in control, that God is sovereign. And if we want to depend on God, that's an important tool that we need in our tool belt, to remember God's place and then remember our place as well the last thing that I think we need to do is to love God and do as we please anybody catch that love God and do as you please so that's a phrase from an ancient church father named Augustine and I think he's so right in it love God first the order's important here church Love God first and then do as you please. Where He stirs your affections, do something. If it's serving in our kids' ministry area, you saw our kids earlier if you were here for, for worship. You saw our new kids' ministry coordinator. Like, we need help. We need help in that area. Maybe you need to get involved in that. Maybe in some other place. Whatever it looks like for you, get involved. Do something. Love God first. Let your affections stir in you in obedience to him. And then do. Go. Be a part of something. Church, we have an opportunity to really approach this world in a way that will change the way people look at us. Right? Like if, if, if people look at us and they see that we're living in joy and in fulfillment, even though the world is crashing down around us, man, people will notice and people's hearts will be stirred toward God. And so the challenge for us today is to really depend on God. Whatever it is God's stirring in your heart to do, let's do it. I think at the end of the service, we're going to do something maybe a little bit different. We're going to leave the stage open and if you would like to come up and pray with someone, please feel free to do that. But if you've got some some like work to do with God and you just want to do it alone, do that. Come up, you can pray. You don't have to leave right away. Maybe that's something that, that you need to do to help restore, rekindle your dependence on God. Life is unpredictable, but God is not. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this great truth that when we depend on you, you're with us. That even though life is short, it's fleeting, it's hard, it's complicated, it's filled with tears, even though all that is true, God, you are present in all of it. Not a single tear rolls down our cheek without you catching it, without you using it. And Lord, I know we don't have the answer for why and, you know, why things happen the way they do. And, and again, sometimes I want to know why too. But God, I think it's better that we know that we can depend on you regardless, that you'll be with us, that you'll fill us, and that you'll satisfy us. Lord, we love you. Be near us, God. Amen.